This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. Uh, We're glad you could listen into our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I practice law at Alan Pierce & Associates in Salem, Massachusetts. Before we begin the show, I'd like to take time to thank our fantastic sponsor, Benoit Language Services. You can find out more about them at benoitinc.com. I've known Sal Benoit, and I've been using his interpreter and language services for about 25 years, and they do a fantastic job. Before we begin our um, topic today, which, by the way, is going to be a discussion of symptom magnification, malingering, and issues that might face the uh, defense in a workers' compensation claim, I want to take a minute just to talk about the year 2011 and the fact that that year that's just coming up will be the centennial or 100th anniversary of the establishment of state workers' compensation laws in the United States. And in connection with the centennial, uh, my hometown, the city of Boston, will be hosting a three-day centennial event uh, focusing on workers' compensation for the last 100 years and what we might expect in the future. And including in that commemoration will be a, a dinner featuring noted uh, treatise author and workers' compensation expert Lex Larson. It will include a symposium chaired by the very renowned, well-known Professor John Burton. And there will be other events as well. The American Bar Association Tort Insurance Practice Section and Labor and Employment Law Section uh, that deals with workers' compensation. The respective committees will be holding a three-day series of CLEs and uh, the TIPS Workers' Comp Section and the Labor and Employment Law Workers' Comp Section have put together a fantastic array of subject matters. And speaking of the American Bar Association uh, Workers' Comp Committee, at this time I'd like to introduce my guest. Speaking to us via telephone is attorney Douglas Jones from the firm of Jones Dietz with offices in Lexington, Louisville, and Florence, Kentucky. Doug is the chair-elect of the TIPS Workers' Compensation and Employment Law Section. He is the principal in Joan Dietz. He has 25 years of litigation experience in Kentucky, primarily in workers' compensation claims. And Doug has served as president of the Kentucky Bar Association, Workers' Compensation Section, as well as being an adjunct professor of the Salmon P. Chase College of Law Uh, from which he is an alum. In 2007, Doug was inducted in the inaugural class of the American Bar Association College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers. Doug, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. Doug, I'm intrigued by this subject, and I know you've lectured and spoken on this subject um, several times, and it's something that all of us deal with in our practice and we need to understand and know about. And I have, as you know, primarily a claimant or plaintiff-based practice, and your practice is the mirror opposite, uh, representing employers and insurers. And that is the phenomenon we are all familiar with. Um, There are many names that it goes by. Um, I guess for simplicity purposes, we'll refer to it right now as symptom magnification. 
And I know it goes on uh, various guises and there are various terms uh, surrounding that, which we can get into, including the M word or malingering, which has a connotation and a, uh, a whole set of problems on its own. Uh, tell us a little bit about symptom magnification from your perspective and how it impacts uh, you, your practice, your clients, and the costs of workers' compensation claims. Alan, symptom magnification is one of the most significant uh, factors many times in the not only the evaluation but the actual handling of a workers' compensation claim. It is one of the toughest areas with which we have to try to deal and evaluate claims and the realities of trying to assess uh, objective findings and legitimate uh, symptoms and sequelae of a physical or related injury to then have superimposed upon that um, some element of exaggeration or symptom magnification, whether uh, intentionally or consciously or subconsciously, uh, is a tremendous complicator. And then the challenge to try to uh, segregate or ferret out the real and the objective uh, from the magnified or exaggerated is one of the greatest challenges we have many times in, in the handling of the claims. Give us an example of uh, the type of case that you would handle where you'd be dealing with the issue of symptom magnification and what you would do to uh, successfully or attempt to successfully defend that case or minimize the cost to your client. We stereotypically, Alan, see a couple of different uh, patterns or profiles that are prevalent in this area. Uh, one, for example, is the problem employee and problem in that there is oftentimes a spotty or an inconsistent work history. Um, we've seen and handled claims with as many as 20 or 30 different employers, sometimes in a 10 or 15 year uh, work life span. And generally, we see issues we think are oftentimes related to motivation for whatever reason. Uh, there's a pattern of workers that are just simply not motivated to consistently uh, maintain regular, consistent, and daily employment. And we see that correlation quite often then when we also see exaggerated symptoms or symptom magnification. Uh, secondarily, we have seen a pattern and some consistencies in presentations where, for whatever reason, a worker might be performing work and having obtained regular employment uh, in a certain area or line of work or a certain occupation where it's simply not a good match. And in particular, I'm thinking of one large manufacturing operation that came to Kentucky in the 80s, uh, several thousand employees, and we saw a lot of people re-enter the workforce, many uh, homemakers and uh, spouses that had not been employed for many years, uh, stay-at-home moms, that kind of thing, uh, suddenly urged to get back into the workforce through this large expansion in Kentucky, 
and it simply was not a good match. So was the and problem, started, was, was, were there a, a rash of on-the-job injuries or minor injuries that produced extensive disability? Exactly. And, and our sense of things in handling and evaluating and observing many of those claimants and claims was that then there was a secondary element of exaggeration or magnification uh, overlaying some physical injuries where we feel like that person was simply in the wrong job for the wrong reason at the wrong time. Now, are you picking this up just because of the length of time somebody's out, or is it through an analysis of the treating physician's medical records or uh, an independent medical evaluation that the insurance company might order? Where do you pick up the actual um, basis uh, to conclude? It's a complication. It's a compilation, rather, of different indices and factors, uh, including all of the above, when we're seeing oftentimes uh, minor injuries or injuries reported that should be of a temporary duration or a worker should be able to get back to work uh, and get to maximum medical improvement in the short term. Uh, we're noting oftentimes an elongation of the symptoms, an inordinate period uh, of being off work for a minor or temporary injury, and then just a general presentation to both the treating doctor and the independent evaluator um, with uh, complaints and subjective complaints that are well out of proportion and, and inconsistent with the objective findings. Well, let's get back to your uh, original definition of symptom magnification, and I noticed you use the the terms conscious or subconscious or unconscious uh, behavior. Uh, let's try to distinguish the uh, term malingering uh, from which I presume would be a conscious uh, deceitful attempt, intent uh, to uh, exaggerate or prolong an injury for purposes of secondary gain or some other purpose unrelated to the injury. Uh, how often do you see actual outright malingering if that's the proper uh, definition? I would estimate or perhaps even guesstimate, Alan, that we see the conscious uh, deception. And uh, note that the AMA guides, which we use as a guideline in Kentucky, uh, does in fact specify that malingering is a conscious deception for the purpose of gain. And that is a much smaller percentage than the claims where uh, we often feel like there's an element of symptom magnification or exaggeration. I would estimate uh, less than 10% of the claims do we see what we feel like is a conscious deception, maybe less than that. Well, I would put that number from my experience significantly less than that, but uh, that really does indicate that malingering in terms of the conscious, uh, purposeful, intentional production of uh, grossly exaggerated symptoms is a minor part of the problem. I would suspect that malingering, uh, uh, the concept of malingering, is probably a, a bit easier to deal with because you could then use the tools of outside investigation and other uh, uh, surveillance and other type of activity investigation uh, to be able to uh, build your case. Is that, do you find that to be uh, how you best deal with uh, cases where you strongly suspect or your doctor tells you there's a suspicion of malingering? Well, your your statements and our experience uh, are consistent in that the malingering cases, the conscious deception, uh, is usually more identifiable, more inconsistencies in the overall presentation, uh, 
more inconsistencies clinically, um, and those are much more uh, and readily, readily observable. And you know that's where we uh, start directing um, resources and attention into surveillance, um, you know, activity checks, uh, background checks, things of that type. If we have a reason to suspect um, malingering or a conscious deception. And I would assume, and um, I'm sure you will verify this, that the remedy, in addition to defending the claim or terminating benefits or defeating benefits, depending on how egregious the behavior might have been, uh, there are certain fraud or other remedies that might be available uh, when somebody is found to be malingering. And, uh, of course, those costs to the system diminish the value of the benefits for those legitimately hurt. So even those of us who have a natural affinity toward the injured worker as opposed to an insurer, uh, we, believe me, are as opposed to any people abusing the system for their own gain because it does hurt everybody else. And I know you've talked about and tell us how the fraud issues might come up in the context of a malingering situation. And I might also begin by saying uh, your statements and experience is consistent uh, with ours, and and uh, incidentally, the majority of the time when our employer clients or carriers uh, have a suspicion of fraud or conscious malingering, the majority of the time, the source of that information is a coworker. Because we find that the um, workers with integrity and that do take their job seriously and appreciate um, the employment opportunity of the work setting that they enjoy are as offended by conscious uh, deception or fraud or malingering um, as is the employer and providers. Well, let's talk about the more difficult aspect of this, and that is the unconscious or subconscious behavior patterns that follow after an injury that may result in symptom magnification which therefore extends a disability and extends costs. Uh, tell us your experience with um, that type of pain behavior that may go under different names. As we discussed earlier, that is the perhaps the most complicated scenario with which we are presented in evaluating uh, and or defending a claim. Um, just by way of... Uh, background or a broad brush uh, comment as we discuss this area. Uh, there is a notation in the fifth edition of the AMA guides, which was dropped from the sixth edition. But in the fifth edition, there was a notation of a study uh, performed by a Professor Weintraub, whose study uh, demonstrated that over 40% of the injured workers uh, surveyed or questioned either reported having uh, been involved in a symptom magnification or exaggeration or conversely uh, stated that they had no problem and thought an element of that uh, was not problematic and in fact consistent many times just with the presentation of a claim. And I have always found that study um, to be somewhat alarming and a concern. Uh, moving into the more substantive analysis of that area, um, 
you know, we get into areas, uh, sub, sub areas and categories of that, such as the conversion disorder, where, for example, there are usually, and as a baseline, I think the uh, fourth edition of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM-4, talks about a baseline of a neurological or a legitimate uh, injury uh, as a basis and a foundation for the ultimate presentation of a conversion disorder or some type of magnification, uh, whether uh, conscious or unconscious. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up at this time because I, that was going to be my next area of question because when we see or I've seen in my practice or it's been pointed out by either my treating doctor or the IME, who I do have to pay attention to, even if I may not agree, that there is a symptom magnification. Uh, we oftentimes do see it characterized as um, conversion disorder or conversion reaction or somatoform disorder or chronic pain syndrome. Uh, there are various names that have been attached to this. And that, and when you mentioned the DSM, which is the manual for psychiatric disorders, um, that raises the issue of the specialty of psychiatry and how that enters into these cases. And if you've got somebody who's been out with a uh, a back strain but has been out of work now for nine months with no end in sight and the, the responses are well out of proportion, as a defense attorney, uh, do you bring in a psychiatrist to do an evaluation to make your case? Uh, or can you make your case on an orthopedic independent medical evaluation uh, on its own? We would normally use an independent uh, psychiatric uh, expert in a case like that, especially uh, when you get into something like a conversion disorder where there, uh, you know, is just part of the diagnostic criteria. Uh, there is an underlying um, uh, injury, usually a, a motor or a sensory function or impairment, and the, 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 the magnification or the conversion disorder is usually not intentionally produced, and that's that's you know that's very involved uh, areas of analysis, and we use uh, a highly qualified expert to help evaluate those. Okay, areas. now let let me think this through as the injured worker's attorney, and uh, I've got a back strain case or a soft tissue back injury with prolonged disability, and my client uh, wants to remain on workers' comp. The insurer. Uh, has an IME that diagnoses conversion disorder, brings in a psychiatrist who confirms conversion disorder, identifies it as a legitimate psychiatric diagnosis. From my perspective, even though I may not agree that it's a conversion disorder, might I still be able to continue my client on benefits on the basis that the physical injury produced a conversion disorder, which is identifiable and is independently disabling? How do you get out from under that approach? Statutorily, in Kentucky, for example, and I don't know that Kentucky is dissimilar from many other states, if in fact there is an underlying uh, physical injury, then a psychological or psychiatric overlay, and I would consider a conversion disorder to be a type of overlay or superimposed upon an underlying physical injury, that is indeed compensable and would warrant, if legitimate, uh, and properly uh, assessed and confirmed would warrant a continuation of benefits and even an eligibility for permanent benefits. Well, with that note, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back and speak with Doug Jones on symptom magnification in the workers' compensation setting. 
Need to communicate with your non-English speaking clients? Call Benoit Language Services. We have interpreters and translators throughout the USA, so you are able to converse quickly and effectively with your clients. We cover all legal matters, medical appointments, and statements. We offer telephone interpretations, written translations, and handle all proceedings at the Department of Industrial Accidents. Benoit Language Services, dedicated to the art of communication. Call us for a free quote at 1-800-261-5152 or visit BenoitInc.com. That's B-E-N-O-I-T-I-N-C.com. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. With me today is attorney Doug Jones, founder of the law firm of Jones Dietz in Kentucky. And we've been talking about conversion disorders, uh, symptom magnification, and so forth. One thing I want to talk about before uh, our program ends is the tests that physicians employ, most usually uh, independent evaluators hired by the insurance company, but also uh, treating doctors as well, that can somehow identify or detect uh, symptom magnification. I know a lot of it is self-evident, somebody who is grimacing and reporting pain, barely being touched. But we've, I don't think any of us have ever read a medical report that didn't refer to the so-called Waddell signs. Uh, tell us, first of all, tell us what they mean to you and uh, of what importance are they in your practice? Alan, as I uh, also see and have to evaluate those both from treating physicians reports and independent evaluators as well, we consider that one element of a claim to be evaluated. We try to evaluate the claims A to Z, the person's uh, education, work history, overall presentation, objective medical findings. Is there an element of exaggeration? Has there been a spotty work history? Uh, and if we start seeing or sensing elements, uh, and one of the things we look for that's perhaps most critical in this entire area of discussion uh, is the uh, worker's level of motivation. And when we start sensing or perceiving that there may be issues as to motivation and start seeing inconsistency with objective findings versus complaints, um, then when we see positive Waddell findings, we're much more on the alert. As a standalone, that's not a determining factor, but certainly an important piece of the overall evaluation. And just to put this in proper posture, what are the uh, so-called Waddell signs that we well, look for? Well, my favorite one is where they exert pressure on the top of the head and then see what response subjectively that elicits from the patient. I think that's termed and, axial loading, and I guess it's supposed to produce no pain response. It, it is, and quite often uh, it not only produces a response, but sometimes head to toe. 
symptomatologies uh, are presented at that point, and that's that's the Waddell sign that I find uh, particularly noteworthy. Funny, my favorite Waddell sign is the uh, straight leg raising test that is done. It's called a distraction straight leg raising test. Describe for us what that is. Well, first the uh, physician will raise a patient's uh, leg with the patient in the supine or lying position. And then usually later in the exam with the patient sitting with his or her legs perhaps hanging over the side of the examining table, the doctor sometimes will be doing uh, a reflex test. And while they're doing that, they'll raise that ankle and that lower leg from 90 degrees to an even plane. And if that is done without registering complaints and the supine leg raising test uh, resulted in significant complaints, then that's a very inconsistent finding and, again, something to be evaluated with the overall scheme. And by the way, these these tests, uh, the examples that you've been giving are for low back injuries where the sciatic nerve is being involved and would not necessarily be the test you would use for an upper extremity or a lower extremity injury. Correct. I know some of the others are a non-anatomic pain or or uh, a numbness where it doesn't fit a pattern or superficial tenderness or overreaction uh, and overt pain behavior. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that generally most physicians will look for whether it's a number of three or four or five of these tests being positive to at least indicate that the Waddell signs were indicative of uh, symptom mag- magnification. Has that been your experience? Yes, I think looking at the Waddell test as a whole, that would be true certainly in our handling and defense of the claim, if we see inconsistent findings on any one of them, uh, we're on more of an alert status with the axial test and whole body pain, inconsistent straight raising. You mentioned, um, you know, inconsistent dermatomal uh, complaints, uh, hyperesthesias, where the patient says the entire extremity is numb, what they call stocking glove complaints. Mm-hmm. So if we see one of those, you know, it's kind of a red flag if we see two or three of them. Uh, then that's sig- significant in our handling of that claim. And which, which also leads me to, to uh, discuss the fact that Dr. Waddle came up with uh, these uh, signs, I think, just about 30 years ago. It was in 1980. He published that in a, uh, a medical journal. I think it's called Spine. And for the next 20 or 25 years, uh, even to now, uh, if he if he had a, a a trademark or a royalty on the on the Waddell signs, he could make a fortune every time it's mentioned in an IME because it's in every almost every report I see. The problem has been that many physicians and many insurers take a positive Waddell signs as evidence of malingering. And you, I think, are aware of this. About twenty years later, uh, or actually in nineteen ninety eight, Doctor Waddell published another a monograph in the spine. And you used the term they raised a red flag. He actually indicated in his journal that positive Waddell finds should only uh, be a yellow flag, that they are not evidence of malingering, and that they have been consistently misinterpreted and and misused clinically and medical legally. And uh, more than once I found independent doctors saying, aha, this fellow is uh, malingering because he's got uh, eight out of eight positive Waddell signs. And I think that's a disservice uh, to my client or the patient, but it's also a disservice to what Dr. Waddell was doing, which was establishing at least something else to look at as a psychological uh, tool of importance when you're assessing somebody's uh, either 
need for surgery or disability status. Which is exactly why we consider that as simply one element of the case to be evaluated, albeit a significant element. And my recommendation in defending these cases for about 30 years, and also did some representation of the injured worker earlier in my career, is to strongly encourage the injured worker not to fall into that uh, category that Professor Weintraub uh, talked about, is there's really no need to exaggerate or symptom magnify. Simply present honestly and candidly both to the uh, uh, clinical providers and anyone else involved in the application of the claim and I think the claim is easier evaluated and handled and hopefully settled and resolved without litigation when that happens. And on that note, especially the concept of settling the claim, I'm going to say I agree with you that from my perspective, handling these cases is difficult. Uh, They're difficult to manage. They're difficult to resolve. And uh, I agree with you. The earlier these um, symptoms and the the forces behind these symptoms are identified, they're properly resolved either by way of appropriate treatment or or other type of resolution. Doug, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters. Um, I hope to see you soon, and to everybody out there, go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Tuck Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.